1: Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. In late spring, I
0: interviewed documentary filmmaker Carol Rainey. For ten years in the late 1990s and early 2000s, she was married to the artist and prominent UFO researcher Bud Hopkins. Even before they were married, she worked with him on his research. She was inside that community as alien abductions peaked in public consciousness and the stories reached the zenith of their strangeness. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals.
2: I'm Carol Rainey, and um, I was married for 10 years to Bud Hopkins, abstract expressionist painter and UFO researcher. And I came from a background of spending 20 years uh, making films for epidemiologists in the Boston area. And that involved writing many, many grants to national institutes of health along with the epidemiologists, and we brought in millions in grant funding to make films about issues of public health. I don't come from a science background originally, but in all of those years of working for epidemiologists and later in um, New York City with the major uh, medical institutions like New York Presbyterian, um, I learned a lot about how scientists think about protocols, how they think about their hypothesis about some some phenomena in the natural world, and how they go about gaining real knowledge in the real world. And that was pretty wonderful to know about. What
0: was Bud's sort of hypothesis about alien abductions?
2: I would say he started developing that even before his his first book, um, Missing Time, but he had a pretty good line on uh, the narrative that many people in the United States were being out and about in a lonely place, somewhere where nobody else was, you know, out riding along at night in their car. And if they'd stop and get out, there would be a bright light overhead and there would be a UFO looking at them. And eventually the light would get extremely close and the person would be pulled up a beam of light into the alien craft. And there they would be examined and prodded and tested and eventually have their reproductive organs dealt with in one form or another and this was the idea that people who were taken out of their out of their cars out of their their walk in the woods that they were being used and to many extents abused by ets who came down for whatever reason to interact with humans
0: and then he so, my understanding is that he kind of took that original narrative
2: mm-hmm. and then
0: sort of sort of wildly expanded it yeah. um,
2: Well, I think the narrative that was, may not be fair <laughs> No, um, it is in a way, and there are reasons for that, but um, bud first of all, it's extremely bright, very articulate able to think on his feet. I mean, I I admired so much about him, Um, including his art, which is, I married an artist, as did his wife, second wife, I'm sure. But um, by the time I met him, he'd pretty much given up on being part of the art world in Manhattan. And his, almost his entire life was really taken up with being this leader in a movement called alien abduction. And his best friend in the world was David Jacobs. And they were as close as father and son or two brothers. They spent hours talking on the phone to each other, sharing their cases. And in many cases, they shared actual abductees and i I'll, I'll use the word the abductee that people call themselves it's not that i'm saying they are or they aren't i'm just you know that that's their designation of themselves so i call them that and then so he um
0: again this is my 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 impression is that that he and jacobs um both sort of uh, ended up coming to the conclusion that the number of people who were being abducted was, was far higher than was sort of previously thought.
2: Yes. And that's partly because um, Bud's work expanded the original narrative and he did stay relatively close to the pattern from the Hill case, Betty and Barney Hill. But what, His writing added to it was that nobody was safe anywhere, that aliens could enter your bedroom at night coming straight through the walls, coming through the windows. I mean, his view of alien beings in the world was that they were godlike, really. they I mean, ordinary physics did not prohibit them. From doing whatever they wanted to do to take advantage of people's um, helplessness, and they were the abductees were used in in Bud's thought in the same way that we observe, you know, wolves out on the out in the forest or out on the uh, in the wild in the wild. And we experimented on them to some degree from afar. And that's what he felt uh, the aliens were doing to us. They might put tracking devices in us, like, um, you know, what what's called an implant these days. And, um, you know, many of his people came up with those implants partly to... Um, add credence to Bud's narrative, and because that was the story that was becoming increasingly popular in mainstream media during the 1980s and 90s. I mean, during the 90s, I, I met him in 1994, and I had never heard of UFOs, literally, nor had I heard of alien abduction by the time I met him. It's too complicated to go into why I was such a virgin, but I was. So this seemed like a great intellectual adventure that I was going to go on. Um, I had left behind a clan of 75 close family members who were fundamentalist Christians in the Midwest and basically lost the entire family. So I think when I heard about this, there was a spiritual element to it too. And it was only much, much later, nine years later that I discovered that Bud also had a spiritual element in what he was wanting to do. And um, his sister, Informed me after we'd been married, I don't know, eight or nine years, that Bud, who was an avowed atheist, that he had once, as a young man, applied to the Princeton School of Theology and was accepted after um, high school. So he was set up to become a minister, a spiritual leader. And I couldn't believe that after all of these years and our shared intimacies, that he had never once mentioned that he had wanted to be a minister and had been enrolled at Princeton. So that was very, very startling to me, but I could see it in the way that he ministered to needy people who just filled the apartment most days. And um, it was a very overwhelming lifestyle. It was uFOs twenty four seven. I had left my job in production in Boston, so I got my own camera and started shooting yet one more documentary, but this one would be you know nobody no strings attached no no federal funding, no state funding, no city funding funded out of my back pocket. And that gave me a great deal of freedom. So a lot of the evidence that I was gradually building up in terms of the validity of this phenomenon is on videotape. And I have over a hundred hours of tape. Unfortunately, it's, it's, um, in a lower format that's gonna be hard to use today. But uh, that's, you know, I can use the transcripts of that to quote people directly. And I have hypnosis sessions with many of the abductees. But Bud was all for that and completely backed it and said I was free to use any of his resources. And when the a witness case, which was where he was focused when I met him, he opened the drawer where, in the cabinets where all of the <clears throat> evidence was for that case. And he said, it's yours, go in. And again, that impressed me that he was that open to having me, on my own terms, research what he'd already been researching for, I don't know, eight, Eight, nine, ten years when I met him. So he hadn't yet completed Witnessed when I met him, and he handed the manuscript to me to read. And and, again, Bond was very believable. Um, You know, one of the more intelligent people I've ever met, but with this caveat not at all given to science or interest in science he knew almost nothing about psychology or psychiatry or recovered memories he didn't know except you know kind of to mouth it a bit he didn't know anything about scientific protocols or the scientific method and how you use that to make sure that the information you believe you're gaining in the world that that information is valid and you know, the, as I became more and more part of the UFO world, I became less and less convinced that many of the people doing research were doing it with enough valid understanding of science and manipulation of testimony and leading witnesses. All of those sorts of things. Nothing about neurobiology. None of them knew anything about that. Except for, I I, I won't say nobody, but the people in my immediate circle were David Jacobs, John Mack, and Bud Hopkins. And John was the only one with a a background in science. It's interesting that you say that,
0: because I I do feel, just as I've been doing research for this podcast, that Mm -hmm. there's sort of this kind of science adjacent um, mm-hmm. uh, work that's being done, which right. isn't very, you know, to, doesn't, doesn't have the critical, uh, I don't know, sort of self-examination or, or initial skepticism about, about data that, that you expect right. from.
2: No, there's too much credulousness a- after a while. But I can explain some of that because as a complete newbie, not having—I mean, I was in graduate school for years and years. Nobody talks about UFOs there, but um, so th- it was so new to me that I was very open-minded, very willing to listen. But I never lost my critical faculties, and I can tell you that when I was spending, you know, twenty-four-seven involved in the UFO phenomenon. And with producers and directors coming in and taping shows all through the 90s, it was like back-to-back production in, in our apartment. But here's what, what happened. To me, I, at a certain point, again, coming from academia and medical fields, I still had, some, you know, you never completely outgrow your, your first education. And mine was a fundamentalist take on the development of the entire world and all of humanity. And there's something in me still longed to incorporate a more spiritual understanding of myself. And this was John Mack's take on it too. John was so not interested in science. Um, Once I was sitting on a, a porch in... Newport at a Newport bed and breakfast where a bunch of people interested in the subject gathered every summer. And um, I was in the middle of writing Sight Unseen with Bud, and I started to tell him about this really exciting find I had that science research had just developed the, the use of a laser beam of light that would pull objects up the light, which was exactly what was being reported by, um, by abductees, that they were pulled up the light. It sounds science fiction crazy, but I was out there researching cutting edge scientific discoveries. And so I'm telling John this, and I'm really excited. And he looked at me and he just said, Carol, I'm not interested in the science. And I just started laughing I just because that was the hope of people like Bud and Dave who knew they weren't scientists and didn't really have any interest in science. They hoped that John would come in to the field and bring serious scientific research uh, into the field. I mean, they genuinely did. And that wasn't John's interest, he was definitely more interested in an extraterrestrial outreach program and something that would be um, a welcoming program for any beings who might approach the earth. And um, Bud and Dave regarded what they were their their findings, as they interpreted them, they regarded their findings as showing it, that that it, if the aliens weren't here to harm us and we didn't know, maybe they were, that they certainly weren't here to do us any good. Um, that they used us basically as research subjects, and they had no compunction about. Coming into our bedrooms at night, or dipping into our cars, or wherever we happen to be, and vacuum us up, and um, either experiment with uh, eggs and sperm. You know, none of this makes sense scientifically over, you know, decades and decades. But anyway, that those were the two opposing forces in, in. research at that time. For me, what, what was amazing, and I could kind of catch myself doing it, but not entirely, is that there's almost a, um, a force field that is set up for anyone in the, in the area, in, in reach of it, when that is a strong belief that this is what is happening. And we're trying hard to prove that this is what is happening and that it's happening all over the world. And we have evidence, what Bud called evidence, would be people sending him um, snapshots of a mark on their body, whether it was a scar or a bruise or whatever. And John knew that those would, those would not be taken well as evidence. You know, it's not something you gather first person. There's, there's, no, there's no guard on the chain of custody. None of that. So um, things that Bud and Dave considered to be evidence, I did not. And But that didn't stop me from being pulled over into that. That sphere of strangeness is all I can say, strangeness. And it felt like it was paranormal. It felt like these stories that I was videotaping, not just what Bud was telling me, but what I was hearing and putting on tape, that there was enough there, enough similarities between the stories that you had to pay attention. And at some point I remember thinking when I was shooting with Bud, we were on Cape Cod and um, a man I didn't know had called in and was talking to him. And I walked through the room and I heard Bud say, did they come through the wall this time too? And when I thought about it a few minutes later, I thought, I didn't even break a sweat. I didn't even jump when he said that. I just, Accepted. that's how it happens. And, you know, when when that happens to you, you need, you know, you need, you know, you need to put your guard up even more. And I would always, always ask him skeptical questions.
0: That's really interesting. Did he welcome sort of skeptical questions or was that was that seen as uh, sort of questioning his work or authority or, or what have you?
2: Yes. <laughs> um, he was good with me in the beginning. Um, the, uh, he, he wanted me to see what he saw. And um, again, offered all of the, you know, tape recordings over, what, a 20-some year period for me that were open to my inspection, my listening. Um, but he, he wanted me to be able to ask questions on camera because that's where some of the best, you know, most spontaneous material happens is when you're just going through your day and you pick up the camera and I start to ask him about the phone call that had just happened in the Cape Cod house. And, you know, he tells me about it. It's good stuff. I mean, I'm I'm a filmmaker, and, you know, I had a really articulate, no wacko husband who was telling me things I'd never heard about, so it was worth listening, and I did.
0: Strange Arrivals will return in a moment.
2: There's a lot
3: happening these days.
0: So maybe you can tell me a little bit about the Linda Cortilla case, because that, that, that seems to be sort of the height of things or a turning point. Right.
2: No, I think um, the Linda Cortilla case was his big case. And one of the things that why the Linda Cortilla case was such a huge case for him is that it it pushed new boundaries. I mean, the thing is, there's almost no money in working the UFO research field, unless you're doing regular gigs like Stan did, Stan Friedman, who was a friend of mine. And you know, he, he knew how to market himself and he got gigs all over the world actually. So he, he kept a modest income coming in, Bud didn't do that, his The way he worked was to have really strong concept in uh, missing time. And then he was only interested in cases after that, that broke new ground. So um, the, um, the case in intruders broke all sorts of new ground in terms of him claiming to have discovered patterns. Um, I guess in that case it would be the the breeding pattern of um, abductees who would feel they had once been, um, their eggs had been taken or the sperm had been harvested and years later they'll be taken aboard a craft and they will see what they believe are their children, half alien, half human. And you know, began to get so weird to me that I would push back even more on how that knowledge came to be. But the deal was, and, and I would go, when we were thinking of writing a book together, based on my science background, and looking at cutting edge aspects of science that would possibly illuminate the UFO phenomenon. When we were doing that, we went to talk to a couple of editors at publishing houses. And what they said categorically, don't come. I mean, this was in what? This must have been the early 2000s. They said, don't come back unless you have a brand new, never seen before idea um, for a UFO so the, the push is always for new, bigger, better, more outlandish. And I would say that Dave and Bud definitely delivered on that in each of their books. So that's where the pressure was coming, was from, from the need to publish and yeah. the
0: fact that you just can't publish the same book again.
2: Well, that and to have any, any uh, kind of standing in the lecture circuit, ufo lecture circuit you have to have new material new cases to present always people don't want to come there and you know pay to hear the same thing they've heard before so there were always he he was wanting cases that would further develop the narrative or as he might say cases that would illuminate it further
0: yeah it's interesting and, and you know you don't have to respond to this but it you know, it's it's a similar time period to uh, the Satanic Panic, which was also Absolutely. concerned with with people being used as breeders, uh, which I hadn't really
2: Absolutely. kind of made that, that, that connection before. Yeah, that was, I, I started reading that literature down in my studio, maybe sometime into Knowing Bud, maybe about three or four years into it. And um, then came the multiple personality um, debacle with women ther- mainly women therapists, kind of taking women under their, under their wing and helping to develop their own narratives of having you know 10, 12, 15 different personalities within one body. and um, you know. If, Whether that phenomenon has any basis in reality, perhaps, but it's extraordinarily rare. There was a creation factor here. The therapists were creating the very thing that they wanted to study. And the the satanic um, uh, ritual abuse phenomenon was part of that. At about the same time, it came along and was written about beautifully by a New Yorker writer, Lawrence Wright. And I started reading all of that information and couldn't really get Bud to read or take any of it seriously. But I felt it should be. It was new information coming into our understanding of how people develop their own internal narratives, and that there were some very, very big red flags dropped in that research. And Bud considered anything like that to be the work of skeptics, and his favorite word was debunker, and it was a word used of great scorn and derision. And, you know, soon he quickly let me know that debunking would not be acceptable in his household. So I was, I just kept asking questions. It was all I could do. And when we got to my documenting, the Linda Cortila case, I mean, Linda was in and out of our house often. And um, there was alien abduction support groups in the front room somewhat regular basis, although I guess they'd been doing that in the 80s and early 90s before I got there. But that's where I first met Linda was at an alien abduction support meeting. And what I began to understand from attending those meetings is that if you're new to the field, you could pick up everything you needed to know about being a standard abductee just by going to those support group meetings and by talking with other abductees. They would lay out certain patterns and other people would second that. And they would say, oh, that happened to me too. And Bud would guide the discussions. And I was... I did call him on this. In terms of support group meetings, I said, why don't you use an AA kind of model where there is no leader, where the witnesses, the abductees themselves could guide the discussion, and instead of you leading it. And my objection to his leading the discussion was that he would tell people about brand new cases and the things he was most interested in pursuing. Well, this is a very tight group of very bright, sensitive, artistically driven people. I respected them a lot. And I did not think they were crazy, not once. Um, I mean, there were some at the margins, but they weren't part of that group. But they were people to whom Something was happening, and that fascinated me, and still should fascinate researchers. Um, If it's, you know, psychosomatic, if it's being, if the narrative is being developed entirely inside individuals, and then they meet in some sort of a place like a support group, and they begin to share things they've picked up from television series, which were everywhere, or from movies, from reading Bud's books, they came with a hell of a lot of knowledge about what other people were saying about their experiences. They were not, you know, blank slates. They came in knowing the material. And when you're working with that, psychologically, you know, research shows there's a great deal of spread um, of terms and means and, and thoughts and patterns between the researcher himself and the people who have come to him for help. Um, and between each other, they, they would pass ideas back and forth. And Bud, by either jumping on them, those ideas, you know, like somebody had found um, cherry blossoms on the floor of her bedroom after an abduction. And that led to Bud confirming that that meant uh, an alien had come through the window and pulled some branches in on the way in, etc. So, it was e- to me, it was fairly easy to see how a, a researcher without really careful, careful protocols and without being peer reviewed, that such a researcher could intentionally or totally unintentionally, creating the story of what had happened to all of these people. And they would often welcome it because, The story of being abducted by aliens explained what was dysfunctional in each of their lives. And you know, just as you and I have some things that don't work as well as we wished, if you found an idea, if you found some concept that explained why you felt uneasy at night, or why you were really mournful at a particular time of year, or why bright lights in the sky startled you or it's just one thing after another or why the person was sexually not functional, why the person didn't get ahead in their own chosen career. And those were all real concerns that people had. So how did this all end? Uh, pretty badly, actually, and really kind of tragically. Um, the the Linda Cortila story and then the stories that the cases that were coming to bud then, like Jim Mortellaro, who, you know, a crowd of people online has supported for quite a while until his various um, lies and hoaxes and untrue stories of what he had done and experienced until the, the truth of those stories began to come out. Um, many people supported this one guy who was Buzz's next big case. And that was it. The uniqueness of Jim Mortellaro's case would be that it was the first time an entire group of physicians upstate New York were... Honed in on this phenomenon, had a number of patients. They, the, the, as Jim told Bud, had a number of patients in this, in this clinical study of abductees. And Bud definitely wanted to be part of that study, and um, he had help from a new protege, uh, uh, Leslie Kane, and she pushed wholeheartedly to follow Jim's story, and a number of people who were on Bud's board of advisors, which was, that board of advisors was an amazing group of very diverse people, but smart people, a medical writer, an engineer, someone in marketing, a musician, an astronomer, They were strong, smart people who had hoped that Bud was going to share what he learned about how to research this phenomenon. Oh, another one was a uh, psychologist. So there were people with a broad enough background that if he had allowed them to guide his research, it, it would have been so much better for everybody but he would not permit any oversight of his cases. And of course, Dave Jacobs didn't either. Each of the, those two men worked entirely on their own. Occasionally they would have someone come sit in on a session or two, but you know, that's, <clears throat> that wasn't necessarily the standard way they did things when that person was there watching. It's just that Bud had a very strong tool he might have used, which was the um, the the intruder's foundation uh, advisory board. And they could have prevented him from going so far into the weeds with the Linda Cortila case, with the Jim Mortelaro case. The kind of it kind of fell apart just because
0: of sort of credulousness to people who were, you know, became clear were hoaxers.
2: Yes, I think that a lot of it went that way. Um, but also because I was finding out things about uh, the, the case in witness that were... Um, uh, Kind of knocking the breath out of me. There was so much uh, cherry picking that Bud did. I mean, this was a, a case from 30 years ago, and it's still right now today is still not completely uh, um, vetted or debunked by anyone who knows the material. I'm. I'm I'm on a memoir about that period and <clears throat> maybe your interview will help me get jump-started and back into finishing it. But um, there was so much material there that was not included. Things that, let's say, Linda meeting with the Pope and the Pope was knew all about her story and abducted her in a in one of the Pope Mobiles or a black car to take her down to wherever he was staying when he came to visit in I guess the early 90s. And you know, Bud did not include that story because it was pretty over the top that Linda Cortila was invited by the Pope to come be the ambassador to uh, extraterrestrials. And that she would have to live at the Vatican and leave New York City, blah, blah, blah. So there were, you know, others that were equally uh, outside the boundaries of common sense that I do have documented. When you see how many things are left out, makes you doubt the things that are included. So then. I went in and started looking at the drawings, which were some of Bud's best evidence, drawings of the scene where Linda was seen eventually by 23 witnesses. Bud's book says, 23 witnesses to her being pulled out of a, what is it, 14-story apartment building and pulled up a beam of light into a hovering UFO. And that was um, late November of 1989, Mm -hmm. right by the Brooklyn Bridge, pretty much a hot spot for Manhattan, early hours of the morning or all hours of the day and night. And um, he he has, you know, he interviewed most of the most of the witnesses, the people he called the witnesses. Um, although he never met two key witnesses, who were the government agents, Richard and Dan, who were escorting a member of the United Nations international staff. They were escorting him down to a heliport in lower Manhattan that night. And their car was stalled by the UFO's powertrain, as, you know, is the... Part of the story that that's what always happens. And so, a person whose name Bud didn't use, but it was Perez de Cuellar as the um, acting, se- as the secretary of the United Nations at the time, that he was the dignitary who was accompanied by two either Secret Service or um, other US security agencies, and by the two of them. So, Bud did interview DeQuayar in an airport at some point. Um, and kind of took the negatives that he got there as being positives. I don't know, it's a, it's a case of someone who wants so badly to prove, this is Bud I'm talking about, he wanted so badly to prove what he believed to be happening he wanted to prove that it was actually happening, and that he had evidence.
0: What did Bud and like David Jacobs? What did they think was sort of ultimately going on? Like, why why were the aliens putting in tracking devices and trying to get you know, I guess, reproductive
2: right. data
0: or, or experimentation or whatever?
2: Was there a theory? Uh, yes. And it was one they defended to the hilt. The beings who were coming to us either needed our resources, which, which Bud certainly believed were our humanist resources, our ability to be empathetic, our ability to love our children and to love other people in our lives and to take care of them. I mean, Bud was a humanist above all things. He really was. And that's the quality I loved in him. Um, uh, His understanding that the aliens were coming to um, either take our culture, take the privacy of our minds away from us by using telepathy, to take the sanctity of our independent personal bodies to take that away from us too by, you know, taking germ material like eggs and sperm and creating alien beings that would be part them and part us. And I can tell you they believed this so firmly that sitting over dinner one night, the Jacobs would, the Jacobs would rent... Um, a house on the Cape, a few houses down from our house in Wellfleet. And over dinner one night, um, Dave Jacobs said to Bud, Bud, you and I are the only two people on the planet who really know what's going on with the aliens. And I kind of did a double take and I said, the only two people on the planet? How how is that, isn't that kind of a dangerous way to think about something that you don't really know for sure? But they believed they did know for sure. So it's hard not to believe that there would be moments where either one of these researchers would realize how much they had manipulated the, the subjects, their abductees, and their narratives, their written narratives, they had to have known that at some point.
0: Wow. This, is, this has been really great <laughs> listening to all this. It's so interesting. And I, and I think it sort of gives greater depth to what I've been sort of interested in and in kind of thinking about as I've been going through this whole process of making this uh, podcast series. Right. Are there other things that we haven't discussed that you think are important to get across?
2: Well, the, the, the fact that they always said, these researchers always said that they never led the subjects. They, they never, you know, walked them into some sort of a hypnosis trap. But what I knew from being right underneath Doing my work in writing and in video production, right underneath an old wooden floor next to Bud's phone, I could hear the way that he did intake. First of all, Peter Robbins would be there as his assistant and would read the the letters is how things came in originally. And Peter would read through them and he'd write abductee on the front, or he'd write probable abductee on the front. And then that person would be mailed a kit of information about the abduction phenomenon, and then told in the kit to probably be best to avoid reading the literature in the field. So the new possible abductee would be sent this kit of material. And I think it varied sometimes, but it was information about, you know, the abduction phenomenon. And also the people who were calling Bud knew enough about the field to call a top researcher in the field. They had also often read one, two, or three of his books previously. And they'd watched movies. They watched Documentaries he had been in. I mean, he was appearing on the Phil Donahue show, on the Oprah Winfrey show, on Canadian, uh, you know, talk shows. He was all over uh, during that time, and so when when people would first call and begin talking to him, he could go on easily for an hour with each person over the phone. And he would often tell them about the cases, the new cases that he was working on. And what that the cue that sends to the person on the other end of the phone is that if you want the attention of this television personality named Bud Hopkins, you might do well, consciously or unconsciously, to have your own memories that were similar to the ones he was interested in. And that is where the tailoring of tales began, long before he even met the people. So in that time, then people would come into the famous person's house, and they'd be talked with a while, told some more about cases Bud was interested in or things that happened, and then Bud would put them under hypnosis. You don't have to lead anybody under hypnosis after that. They already know which way to go. And that happened often. And it's that pre-hypnosis session, all of those sessions, those contacts, is what people on the outside never knew about. I mean, when I wrote the article... Priests of High Strangeness in, a para, in the Peritopia magazine back in 2011, um, many of the old time UFO researchers contacted me privately to thank me for putting that out there. Stan was one of them. And they said, we knew there was something off in this research that Bud and Jacobs were putting out. But we didn't know what it was. You know, we only knew what he told us about how he researched cases. So in her, it,
0: it it reflects a little bit of the Betty and Barney Hill and that Betty had those dreams that she wrote down that right. sort of served as the basis for what they talked about hypnotically. Right. Uh, so this is really interesting.
2: There's such a, well, if you're interested in, um, psychiatry or psychology at all, the porousness that I think exists between a therapist, which Bud and Dave were de facto therapists for people who were very troubled over things that they couldn't explain in their lives. And there, there is a certain resonance that I personally felt coming from my husband, uh, the resonance of his belief it was an influence on what I was able to stay open to hearing. And I watched the people come in, and they were very deferential to Bud. Not many people, you know, uh, questioned his methods or anything like that. And that's where the board of advisors might have helped enormously if he had allowed them to be actually trained to do research work.
0: That's so interesting.
2: Yeah, it's just a missed opportunity and a sadness because they eventually, after, um, you know, the things with the Jim Mortellaro case and a few other hoaxes came down the pike. uh, The advisory committee just said, You know, we can't support you going around and speaking at conferences about cases that we believe are not valid, that we believe are hoaxes, and we would like to have one or two of our advisory board members work with you on cases. And um, Bud was only willing to give them access to the tapes, but he would take a trip to the museum while they listened to it. In other words, he would not be supervised. Again, it makes me sad because I think think this is a valid area for cross-disciplinary teams to study. Um, If if, reports of alien abduction are entirely psychological or people drawing from the zeitgeist of the time, we should know about that. We should know how how easily people can buy into a false narrative or one that appears to explain problems they might have, as this one did, and that most people themselves won't realize that they're being studied without any scientific method, without scientific protocols, without you know, safeguards on where their quote-unquote evidence comes from. I have a scene that I shot with where Bud is in the lobby of our building. He's opening a big package that has an enormous brassiere, and he's pulling that out. It has stains on the back, and he describes to me the woman he's talked to off and on for years, Um, and this woman has sent him, her bra after a um, an event the night before, where she believes that she was abducted, and they were experimenting with some liquid and poured it on her back. So she's sending him this brazier and I said, "Well, what about the chain of custody? You know, how do you know this came from the the." alien abduction event the woman describes. Well, she has no reason to lie. And uh, that's that's Dave Jacobs response often too. They have no reason to lie. Well, come on. People have thousands of reasons to tell whatever story they're telling. And you know, they're just, they're multifaceted. They're complicated and There is no way you can say someone has no reason to lie. That's not how you judge the truth of an event.
1: Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rikiki.
0: Barney Hill was portrayed by Jason Williams.
1: Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut. John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at Grimandmile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Come.